0: No, yeah, I'm No. Now we're just having fun. Okay. You are good. good. Oh, you are good. good. Oh. In 2019, my year, word for the year was good. And in that season, there were a lot of worship songs that spoke about God being good. King of my heart was one that really um, affected me during this. Kit and I were being called to obedience. We were asked to move away from our family, our church, and our jobs that we loved. And through that transition, God was so good. He was with us through all the chaos and the unknown circumstances. Why did you bring us here? When I was lonely and it was hard, I would listen to that song. And he is so good. And while we continued to trust in his ways and what he was doing in our lives, he grew us and he brought us right back to our family, our church, and to new opportunities. God's plans are so much better than our own. God, you are good.
1: I've loved hearing uh, these song stories over the last several weeks. And I can remember the time when I used to carry an iPod and a, a phone, and the day that those two became one. And I could listen to these kinds of stories right here on my phone. Have you ever thought about the impact that these little devices, these inventions have had on our lives Pew Research Group estimates that 97% of adult Americans have a mobile phone in their pocket. I even venture to guess maybe even close to 100% of you in this room right now have a mobile phone of some sort in your pocket. And even more so, 85% of adults in America have a smartphone at their disposal. A phone that does way more than just being a phone I mean, the number of adults that can remember life without a smartphone is slowly diminishing. I count myself in one of those groups. I can remember life without a a smartphone. When I first went to college, um, it was a nine-hour drive from Indianapolis to southwest Missouri. And so when I would do that drive, I would take my parents' phone, only using it, of course, for emergencies. Because believe it or not, people under 30... There were roaming charges. Do you, do you remember that? Like you couldn't call outside of your space or else you'd be, get paid like, you had to pay like $2 a minute or something crazy. And so I took this phone only for emergencies. I'd get back to campus. I would put it back in a box and I would ship it back to my parents, my mom. But that's what my mo- my first mobile phone experience was like. And so somewhere around my sophomore year of college, I was going to be traveling that summer, my, my parents and, and I decided, you know, it's time. I wanted to be able to stay connected. And so I ventured into the world of having that monthly cell phone bill. And my first phone was a Nokia 3330. It looks something like this. Maybe you had this phone. Anyone remember owning this phone? By the way, if you're an adult and you own this phone, it's time to schedule your next colonoscopy. (laughs) You're that old, okay? And not only was this the, the phone that everyone had, it had two functions. It didn't just make phone calls. You could play Snake. You remember playing Snake? I remember sitting there at the laundromat for hours playing Snake trying, like I was explaining this to my kids, and they were like, I don't, I don't get it. And I'm like, that's fine, never mind. So you, you, you had this, this phone, which honestly was probably indestructible. I don't know that you could break that thing, but it was more than just a phone. It was a phone and a game all in one. And so over the next 20 years, the Apple iPhone has been my smartphone of choice. But if we're honest, these things have become way more than just phones. I mean, think of all the things that they have replaced. You, you would used to have to have a, a variety of devices in your kind of uh, closet to use or in your, in your workplace to use. First off, the calculator. You know, you would buy a calculator. Now you don't need a calculator because you have a phone. Not only that, there was a GPS. You could buy a GPS and have that in your car to help you navigate to various places, especially on long trips you don't need a GPS anymore because you have a phone. Or how about the alarm clock? You'd have that on the, the bedside there. You don't need that anymore because you have your phone. Or maybe it's a camera. You would travel with a, a camera, but that's not needed anymore because you have a phone or an airline ticket. You go flying. You don't print off a, a boarding pass, or maybe maybe you do, but you don't get those in the mail from the airline company because you have a phone. They'll just scan your phone as you get in. Or, or Maybe you were tracking your steps with a pedometer. Yes, these existed. Jake Smith looked at me earlier like, what is that? Um, that's a pedometer. It would track your steps. You don't need that anymore because you have a phone. Or how about um, an answering machine? That was even a little further back. You plug that in to make sure people could always get a hold of you. What were we thinking? Like, now we just don't answer the calls, Right. We, but, but then for some reason, you wanted to know who, who tried to call you when you were out enjoying your evening. And you'd have an answering machine, but you don't need that anymore because you have voicemail on your phone. And finally, as a musician, I would buy a tuner. Make sure your guitar is tuned up. You don't need that anymore because there's an app for that. You have a phone. The list could go on and on and on. And in some ways, I, I think sometimes we look at these things and we may have forgotten their core function as a phone to make voice calls with. Even though we call this a phone, I'm I'm honestly not sure that Alexander Graham Bell would even recognize that device or the core function that it used to solely have because we have made it so much more than a phone. Friends, I think we can say the same about worship. I think we can say the same thing about worship in the church. Week in and week out, we gather as a body of believers to worship, but if we're not intentional about the core of what this weekly gathering is all about, we may look back and honestly have trouble recognizing the original core function of what we do when we gather each and every week here in this space. We're in the midst of our our third week of our singer-songwriter series, and throughout these past five weeks, we've looked at various different psalms and what they have to teach us about worship. And today, Stan asked me, if I could help by looking at Psalm 8. I was eager to do that because that actually is probably my favorite psalm in all of the book of Psalms. There's 150 psalms all together, and Psalm 8 happens to be right there at the top of the list for me. And it's one of my favorites because I think it begins to strip back all the complexity we tend to add to a life of faith, and it focuses on God's magnitude and our human state. So, As you know, through the course of this series, we've heard these psalms read and uh, we've even invited you as a congregation to stand as we hear God's word read. So I'm going to do that now. Uh, Go ahead and stand. If you want to open your Bibles, you can to Psalm 8 as Brooklyn comes and reads today's psalm for us. Listen uh, to these words, the word of God, as she reads.
0: Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth you have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies. To silence the foe and the avenger, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth.
1: Let's pray together. God, you are mighty. You are majestic. As that psalm explains God you are powerful and we thank you for this we give you praise and glory and honor not because of anything we have done or how you've specifically impacted our lives but because of who you are God we adore you and we pray that today you may receive this praise and be glorified it's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray amen you may be seated So today, if you'll allow me, I'd like to split up this message into two parts. And that first part, uh, simply I've entitled, Why We're Compelled to Worship. How We're Compelled as Christians to Worship. The psalm that was just read is attributed to King David. By the way, uh, David is attributed as the writer to over half of the psalms. There's 150 in total, and he's uh, assumed to have written more than half of those And you'll notice if you begin to read the book of Psalms and you start with Psalms 1, 2, and 3, they're pretty kind of heavy. There's a lot of despair and a lament in those first seven chapters. But here in Psalm 8, it's in this chapter that we see the first joyful expression of praise and adoration. About 20 years ago, I had the privilege to serve about two weeks in Haiti at a mission there on the north side of the country. And through those two weeks, our sleeping quarters were not really quarters at all, it was actually on the roof. We got to sleep on the roof. And um, we would make our cot each night. And uh, there was no electricity, so there was a generator that ran most of the day there in Haiti. But uh, come a certain time of night, they would turn the generator off and there would be no lights for miles. And I can distinctly remember laying on that cot gazing up into the night sky, amazed at what I could see. Without any of the light pollution or any of the noise or things that maybe distract us here, God's glory was on display in that night sky. Perhaps you have experienced a vivid night sky like that. I could only assume that David, as a shepherd, often found himself lonely in the wilderness at night, gazing up into a, a starry sky then adoring God for his majestic creation. That's the song he writes for us here. It begins there in verse 1. You heard it just said a little bit ago. Our Lord, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set the glory above in the heavens. And not only was God's heaven to be adored, but also his creation down here as well on earth. In verse 2 it continues. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. David provides this contrast with the God who has created the solar system, just with the flick of his fingers, setting the moon and the star and the sun in place. He's contrasted contrasted that with the vulnerability and the weakness of a frail infant, a, a child, And he expresses that even this frail newborn will someday display God's power, overcoming God's enemy. The word silence there is kind of our root word in the Hebrew, meaning Sabbath. And so you think of concepts of uh, bringing to a stop or to silence or to end. In other words, God's power will prevail. And we're to see that not only in the creation of his night sky, but also in the frailty of a human baby. David jumps back up to the sky again and challenges us to consider God's glory revealed in the heavens and the moon and the star again that he just created. The same God who put all of this in place, he cares for you. We see this in verse four. David's humility begins to come out as God's majesty prompts that in us. He says this, what is mankind that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Interestingly, even the the Hebrew word there, mankind, uh, conveys weakness or frailty. We maybe don't see that in that English word. But some translations use the word mortals there. As it would convey weakness or frailty in David's original readers. When we see God's majesty, when we see his power displayed, when we look at the heavens, we then are confronted with our humanity our weakness, our morality. Gerald Wilson states it this way, our psalmist is driven by the experience of the magnificent night sky to acknowledge what humans spend most of their time denying in the daylight, that while humans have little authority and power in the scheme of the universe, evidence of God's power is ready at hand all around In contrast to the enduring natural elements of the world, we humans, well, we come late on the scene. We live fragile and troubled lives and depart quickly, leaving behind little noticeable mark. You might know this to be true. Yeah, you might know your grandparents, and maybe you know your great-grandparents, but how many generations back can you really go and even know their names our impact is sometimes so minute, so little that we have a little noticeable mark while creation remains. I often have these thoughts when I, when I travel and kind of get out of the normal routine of life, get out of the normal setting. Maybe you have experienced that as well. There are really two kinds of people in the world, those who enjoy going to the beach and everyone else who is normal. And I happen to be in that second camp. Yeah, I'll enjoy it for a couple hours, but after a while, the sand and the sunburn and all that—just like, let's go back. Let's go back inside, please. And it's when I've been on those beaches. Sometimes, um, even did this summer, and my kids kind of rolled their eyes at me. I'll just stand at the 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 base of the, the the shore there, and I look out, and you try to spot where the water meets the horizon. And you're just overwhelmed with how huge God's creation is, how magnificent this is, and how small and insignificant I am. I I feel that same way oftentimes when we're traveling, maybe to go to the ocean. You're in an airport, and you look around, and you hear all the languages spoken. You see all the people in the world, and you're like, who who am I? Like, (laughs) I'm one of... So much of God's creation. You start to feel that insignificance in some of those times. And David goes on to tell us that even in the midst of God's great power, even in the the midst of that insignificance that I was just referring to, God has made us just a little lower than the heavenly angels. We have been crowned with glory and honor, and we have authority and dominion over all aspects of that creation. And so, while the end of the Psalm, chapter 8, begins with that phrase, O Lord our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, it ends that same way. But the difference now is our perspective as the readers, it's shifted just a bit. At the beginning, our praise begins by affirming the magnificence of the Creator. And at the end, we stand in awe at the unexpected grace that has elevated us, mere humans, mere mortals, to unimaginable heights of glory and honor, and responsibility. Hear me, church. This sermon and this psalm isn't to diminish your worth. Rather, it's meant to establish the contrast between two truths. Truth number one, our God is magnificent. Will you say that with me? Our God is magnificent. He is magnificent. We see that in David's writing. And David tells us, don't forget that. And if you do, don't worry. Just go outside at night and look up in the skies and you will be reminded of his magnificence. If that doesn't work, uh, consider the complexity of the human body. All of the, the systems and the organs and how it all works together and how God created all that. And if that doesn't work, maybe just consider the fact that babies are made and born and come out of People like that's incredible, or if it's not in the human body, think of think of uh, precipitation, like. Do you ever like I I think about this? Like water comes down from the sky in various different forms, whether it be snow, rain, or there's hail, or there's all kinds of and it goes into the rivers and it goes into the ocean and becomes salty, and then somehow it gets back up into the sky again, and it's not salty anymore, and it comes back down, and this cycle just continues to repeat and repeat. Like that is God's magnificence. Or if it's not even that, how about how about the fact that wind exists? Where? How? What does it come from? I have no idea. But these weathered patterns are all part of God's creation. He is magnificent. And in the midst of our weakness and frailty, the second truth comes in, and that's this. God loves you. Now, I realize that sounds cliche. It's trite. That's the Sunday school answer, yes, God loves you. But some of you have a hard time believing that. Even the song that we heard sung right before the message reminds us that God's love is real. Some of you think of your past, some of you think of what you're struggling with, what you're going through, the thoughts that you have towards God, and you, you severely question that second truth. But I'm telling you, friends, it is true. God loves you, and as Christians, if we believe these two truths, it drives, it compels, it motivates us to worship And adore God. So it's in this realization of God's magnitude and our humanity that we're driven to worship God. But how? How are we to do that? That's our second part of our message today. Examining how we are to worship. Uh, So not only was this week's psalm intended to give us a catalyst for worship, but we also in this message particularly wanted to examine a little bit about the philosophy of worship. I said the word philosophy, and half of you just checked out right there. Stay with me. How is it that we are to worship? What does Scripture tell us about worship? Have you ever thought about that? What, what is this thing that we do on Sunday? This weekly gathering that we do? How, how do we do it? What is it? Why do we do it? If we're not careful, I think just like our phones, we can get so far removed from its origins that we may look back and not even realize what our core function is as worshipers, as the church gathered on a weekly basis. Many of you know this, but before I served as an executive pastor, I was a worship pastor for about 10 years in the church. And uh, it was in those 10 years that I wanted to continue my education a little bit more, so it compelled me to get a master's degree in worship studies Now many people understandably thought a a degree in worship studies would involve a lot of music and a lot of elements of musicianship. It had nothing to do with that. There wasn't a note sung or a melody played. But rather, it was about um, the core function and the biblical aspect of worship and the history of worship and the cultural context of worship and why we gather to worship each and every week. And one of the primary theologians that we studied was a man by the name of Robert I had the opportunity to meet with him and even sit under him for just a bit. He was born under a Baptist minister, the son of a Baptist minister, and he spent significant time, of course, with his parents who were missionaries in the Congo. And so this kind of eclectic background of him caused him to, to really dive in more to what worship was all about. And in his opinion, what we do on a Sunday morning here at Venture, and really every church when we gather to worship, can be viewed in three different lenses. Content, structure, and style. Content, structure, and style. So when we think about why and how we come to worship, he he would argue that these are the three aspects of what makes up corporate worship. That first being content. That is the core of what we do. And from a Christian perspective, the content of our worship should be the gospel in motion. This is the content of our, of our worship, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ in motion. That is the content of what we do. From all the way from creation in the book of Genesis through recreation, even in our lives again, time and time again we tell this story each and every week. This is the story we, we sing about in our songs. This is the story we remember in communion. This is the story we celebrate a new life in the baptistry. This is the story we read about in the Bibles during our sermons. And this story never gets old. It's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Yes, we may grow dull in how we hear it, but that's, that's on us. This story of Surrendered living of new creation, of new life in Christ is celebrated each and every week in our worship. That is the content. And the gospel isn't just uh, proclaimed or read or reviewed or sung about. It is in motion. It's the gospel in motion. It's in motion because it's in all of us and we're, we dis- we're dismissed at the end of worship to go be the gospel, to go be the incarnational life of Jesus Christ into the world That God has provided for us into his creation with those that he has created the content of our worship is the gospel in motion this is the core this is the most important lens in which we view our corporate times of worship not only is there the content of worship but there's also the structure i'm guessing you've heard the word liturgy or liturgical i know as a kid i used to translate that to boring I don't know why. Uh, maybe, I, I, well, I do know now. It was maybe part arrogance, part ignorance. Arrogant in the sense that, well, my church wasn't a liturgical church and we did it right and those other churches were doing it wrong, right? That was my, my thinking of Elise. So there's definitely arrogance in that thinking, but there was also some ignorance because every church has a liturgy. Venture has a liturgy. It's the the structure in which we do worship. You can pretty much guess the elements that are going to happen in this space every time we gather on a Sunday morning, and most likely about 75% of the time, you can probably even guess the order in which they're going to happen. That's because we have a liturgy. We have a structure in which we have put together our worship services. And biblically, there's some basics to that. Structure. We see this in the Old Testament as worshipers were gathered in the temple. We see this in the New Testament and the Book of Acts as we read that believers had gathered weekly to worship and to pray together. And basically, there's four aspects to that structure that are key. There's the gathering. Congratulations, you are all here. You are gathered in this space. There is uh, next after after the the gathering. There's the opportunity to hear the gospel preached. That is why we have sermons as a part of our story each and every week. That's why we sing songs of this gospel message. Not only that, we are to to break bread at the table. That's why these elements were on your chair. In a moment, we will break bread together as a body of believers, remembering the the gospel story, the content of why we have gathered to worship. And finally, there's an opportunity to go home and to love and serve the Lord. Our worship doesn't stop when this hour ends. We are then uh, transformed to go into our community, continue to be the gospel in motion into the creation that we have been placed in. We have a structure. We have a liturgy here, and it's that structure which is the second most. Not as important as the content, which is the gospel, but it's important as well. Structure is very important. Well, the last lens that we talked about was style. Now, I'm going to read... Um, every verse in the Bible that explicitly defines the style in which we are to worship. There are none. Oh, good. We didn't have to read much. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. Paul and Timothy talk about worship and how we are to treat people in worship. But if you're looking through Scripture to find clear instructions on organs versus drums, daylights versus darkness, suits versus jeans, one hour versus two hour, all of those things are an aspect of style. And friends, it's not in there. I've looked. It's not in there. Again, we, we, we have a lot about the content being the gospel. We see a little bit about the structure, but style Style isn't there. And can you, can you imagine if in the first century, or even before that in the Old Testament, God clearly defined the style in which we were to worship? Style is so much contextually applicable that it, it changes. It consistently changes time and time again. I remember um, feeling kind of some relief after I hung up the guitar and decided not to be a worship pastor anymore. I thought, okay, I don't have to hear those weekly refrains of the service and what people thought of it, whether it was, uh, you know, this song, this, or this music, that, or the order, this. Unfortunately, I was a little naive because now as the boss of the worship pastor, I would still get that feedback, though now I would get it a little bit more unfiltered. <laughs> it's my job to filter that down, right? I, I, I'm just, I'm asking if we're really honest When we think about church, when you drive home this Sunday or any other Sunday and you reflect upon our worship times, where do we focus most of our thoughts? Is it content? Is it structure? Or is it something in that style element that has us maybe really excited about worship that day or maybe a little frustrated with some angst? I think if we're honest, a lot of times it's about the style. Look, I'm not saying style is not important. It is. This is how we contextualize the gospel in our culture. This is especially important for our our ones, our one lives, our people who we are investing and trying to continue to pray for as they come closer to Christ because they don't fully grasp the deep roots of the content and the structure, and style is how we connect to them. But each church in this city, in this county, in this country, and in this world has a unique culture. And as Christian leaders, it's our opportunity to connect with that unique culture. And this is achieved through style. You see, only when content and structure is solidified can we become concerned about style. Only when the content of our worship is the gospel and the structure, those four things I mentioned, only when those are solidified and true and shored up, can we then function about style. But I'm here to also confess that as church leaders and as a a worship pastor, sometimes we start here and we miss those other two. Or at the very least, we diminish their importance. Look, there are good reasons to be frustrated sometimes about a worship service in any church and know that as church leaders, we don't always get it right. We don't. But the next time you're really frustrated about something or maybe even the next time you're really excited about something, about ready to have a a new worship pastor start next week, and he has a style. There are elements of that style that will feel different, but the next time you feel uh, either frustration or excitement, ask yourself, is it about the content or the structure, or is it that stylistic piece? Because I I feel that tension. I know many times for me, it's honestly about the style. Believe it or not, Not all the aspects of of these worship services align with my preferences or or Stan's preferences. But as long as the content is clear and it's the gospel and as long as the structure is solidified and it includes gathering, word, table, and dismissal, I can sacrifice my personal preference for my brother or my sister in Christ or the person who is not yet crossed the line of faith, who wants to know more about the life-changing relationship we have and share with Jesus. See, there are as many musical styles as there are people in this room. This phone has allowed Spotify to be at our fingertips. And you think of all of discography, everything out there, and you can have your very specific playlist. That is a new function for Civilization. The fact that we can even play music is relatively new, and then that it's so hyper-specific to our personal taste. That's all brand new, and so when you gather hundreds of people for worship, there are as many musical styles in this room as, as there are people. Similarly, there are as many preaching styles preferred in this room as there are people. There are as many fashion styles, and the list could go on and on and on as there are people in this room. But friends, the unifying content of what we do on a Sunday morning is the gospel. It is the saving act of Jesus Christ and his impact on not only us, but our brothers and sisters that we have gathered to worship with. It's when we're unified around that truth that we can simply proclaim with all honesty and unity, "O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth.